0: The sermon, this sermon is the fifth installment to the eight-part series entitled Lessons from Asking God the Wrong Thing. The sermon is centered on the demand of Israel for a king, even though they know already that Yahweh is king. Chapter 12 of 1 Samuel is sort of a summary and farewell address of Samuel, although you, of course, you will find still Samuel in the Uh, Preceding chapters of the book of Samuel, but this is his union address. This is his farewell speech because he is about to pass the leadership from himself to Saul, the new king. But the entire story, this entire section of the story, is devoted to addressing the rebellion and literally the overthrow of God's rule. But the question is what does it mean for us? What does chapter 12 mean for us? How does this ancient story in chapter 12? mean to me or affect me as a follower of Jesus Christ? What lessons can we learn from Israel's rebellion, from asking God the wrong thing or asking God a king? What lessons can we learn about Jesus or Yahweh? Now, like I said, chapter 12 is a farewell address. And you will find similar, similar speech in Deuteronomy chapter 29 when Moses gave his farewell address to the people Also in Joshua chapter 24, when Joshua, before he died, he talked to the people and gave his feral speech. This is the third installment. Samuel the prophet is giving his feral speech to the people. But he gives this in a form of a courtroom drama. There's too much drama in here. So if you're watching a telenovela, a Korean telenovela, this is like everybody's quiet and Samuel's going to speak and there's a tone of indictment. All right. Let me read to you chapter 8, because chapter 8 will definitely direct you to chapter 12. To understand chapter 12, we have to go back to chapter 8. This is what it says in chapter 8, verses 19 and 20. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. This is way past chapter 8. Now, we have talked about this. This is the instance when they first told Samuel, we do not want to obey your voice. We want a king over us. We do not want Yahweh anymore. We want a king over us. Now that God gave them a king, now that God gave them Saul as a new king, Samuel gathers them again in Gilgal. This is exactly what is in chapter 11. Gathers them in Gilgal, And that's this feral speech. He starts with chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He said, And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me. Now what's interesting here is in chapter 12, they refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And in chapter 12, Samuel was just simply reiterating that. I have obeyed your voice instead of you obeying the voice of God because I'm the spokesperson of God. He's saying, I have obeyed your voice. I have given you a king, and verse 2 he said, and now behold, every time the word, the Bible says, and now behold, you have to pay attention, he's about to say something, he said, and now behold, the king walks before you, I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you, I have walked before you from my youth until this day. What's catchy here is that phrase, a king walks before you. What practically Samuel is saying is that he was the judge, he was the spokesperson of God. The people is supposed to listen to him, the voice of God. Instead, he's now obeying the voice of the people by giving them what they demanded. Chapter 8, verse 19 says, No, but there shall be a king over us. This is a phrase your preschoolers use when you go to a store and he grabs something, a toy. That catches his attention. He tastes it and he said, no, I want this. But you as a parent, you would say, no, you don't need it. We don't have a need for it. You have three of those already in the house. But your kid will say, no, I want it. Imagine the Israelites, these grown-ups, are saying to Samuel in the face of Samuel and God, no, but we want a king. We don't want you. This becomes the opportunity for Samuel to bring his case an indictment to the people. In Samuel, this will become Samuel versus the people of Israel. And later on in part two, it will be Yahweh versus the people of Israel. Now, back in Deuteronomy, if you're reading your Bible, back in Deuteronomy, when Moses was transferring the authority to Joshua because he was about to die, he's giving his farewell address and he's giving authority to Joshua. He said something literally about the presence of God. He said in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 8, it is the Lord who goes before you. So don't be afraid, Joshua. You'll be the new leader. You're not as good as me, but it is the Lord who goes before you. In Hebrew, it's Yahweh Chalak Pane. Chalak is literally walking before you. What does it mean for God to walk before them? Picture this. It's dark, and you are walking in the dark, but there's someone in front of the group who has the torch who's leading the group you are following the group because there's someone holding the torch, walking before you. That is chalab. God is walking before them. So there's a hyperlink between Deuteronomy chapter 31 and Exodus 13, where Moses will say that God walks before them through the pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. Literally, it means God is chalab, walking before them. He's a guide. He's giving direction. In contrast, now, a king walks before them. It's not God anymore. It's a king who walks before them. What walks before them is called Shaul. Shaul literally means desired. So they asked for a desire. Their desire is someone like Shaul or Saul. Shaul, their king. What it means is that They have put their desire in front of Yahweh. In other words, they have prioritized their desire before the desire of God. They have desired someone other than Yahweh. And this is nothing new. You find that back in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve. See, the mother of all the stories is Adam and Eve. Every time there's a series of stories in the Old Testament, and especially in the New Testament, you always have to go back to the Garden of Eden. This is where it all began. Chapter 3, verse 6 Genesis, he said, So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired. When you look at the fruit, I don't know what kind of fruit is that, but it's something desirable to make one wise who took of its fruit and ate. See, the woman saw and she desired. The word shaul is desire, but what's what's used in, De- in Genesis chapter 3 is kind of slightly different. It has more intensity. The word that was used for desire in Genesis chapter 3 is chamad. It's guttural, so it's, there's a something in there, like spitting, khamad. It doesn't get your attention until you read Exodus chapter 20 when God gives you the Ten Commandments. The tenth commandment is, you shall not chamad. You shall not covet. You shall not desire. You shall not desire your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's servants, your neighbor's ox, your neighbor's donkey. You shall not hamad or desire or covet. See, this is the same thing that Jesus quoted Exodus chapter 20 when he was talking about adultery. He said, but if I say to you that everyone who looks at the woman with lustful intent, desire, hamad, covet. See what the people have done is to ask for their desire. The word for ask is sha'al. The word for desire is sha'ul. So they have sha'al, a sha'ul. Does it make sense? There's a play of words when you read the book of Samuel. So What Samuel will do next, will set the tone of the proceeding. Verse 3, he said, Here I am, testify me against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Now watch this. He said, Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Does it ring a bell? It's the 10th commandment, 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's donkey or ox. He was practically saying this again. Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. He's practically quoting the 10th commandment. He's saying, I have not coveted. I have not khamad my neighbor's ox and donkeys. I have not taken anything from you that didn't belong to me. But it sounds like he's providing a contrast between him and Shaul, the new king. Now watch closely because Samuel will mention a very specific word three times in verse 3 alone. He was asking this to put an indictment on the people. But remember... They sha'al, they asked a sha'ul, their desire. Now, there's another word that Samuel will repeat three times. This word, you don't have to remember, it's lachak. Now, what are these words, pastors? I'm just trying to be precise in here because the words are very precise. Lachak. Now, back in chapter 8, God warned all the people who were asking him a king. This king will lachak. Lachak means take. This king will take your sons, will make them soldiers. This king will take your daughters, will make them bakers and cooks. This king will take your vineyards and your orchards and give it to himself. This king will take your servants, and your donkeys and your ox. He will take it for themselves. Lakak. But Samuel is saying, I have not acted like king. I have not taken anything from you. I have not taken anything from you. Lakak. But the people of Israel even though they were warned they did not pay attention the people of Israel in the same way have taken what should not be theirs they have asked for the wrong thing they have asked for a king even though Yahweh was already their king samuel is slowly building his case against the people he's opening their eyes to the consequences of their shaul their desire he's saying that i've been a judge since I was able, and now that I'm old and gray, I have not taken anything from you. But you have not followed me. You have not obeyed my voice. And then he went on to tell them a quick history lesson. So what you find in from beginning from verse 6 up to verse 13 is that there's a quick history lesson. If you have not read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Seven books, if you've not read that, read this portion. It's a summary of the whole book of Genesis to Joshua, to Judges. All right. What what history lesson did he say? What he said, that, that their fathers were in Egypt, they were slaves, and they cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron. And then they went to the promised land, but they forgot the Lord. So God allowed invaders to come. And they cried out to the Lord again. And the Lord brought Jeroboam, Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel. So there's a repetition beginning from the time they came out of Egypt to the time of the judges. It's repeated again and again. God will bless them. They will forget. Invaders will come. They will cry to the Lord. And God will send up a judge, a rescue, a redeemer. And it will come repeat again and again. But this time in Samuel chapter 12, it's different. Look at this, verse 12. He said, And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. Now, let's pause for a moment. The word Nahash is serpent. So there's this guy whose king, whose name is serpent. It's very interesting. You read this in the context of Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, in the Garden of Eden, there was Adam and Eve, and there was the Nahash, serpent, trying to tell them to eat of the fruit. This guy, the serpent king, is telling them, Ha you ha, have, you have to obey me. You have to be, become my slaves. But then when they saw Nahash, they said, I want a king. We want a king. What are they trying to do? What they're trying to do is they're saying, when they saw Nahash, they saw the picture of a king. So they want also a king like Nahash, tall, handsome, warrior, a king that will fight their battles. They want somebody like Nahash. They want a king, not Yahweh, but like a serpent king. But There's a, a poetry in here in verse 13. It says, And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. There's poetry in here. A king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. In Hebrew, it's Melek Asher Bakar Asher Sha'al. Whom you have chosen, whom you have asked. See, this is an indictment of Samuel to the people of Israel. The emphasis here are the words chosen and asked. See, Sha'ul was not God's choice. Sha'ul was the people's choice. God never wanted them to have a human king because he is king. But the people asked for a human king. Why? Because the people didn't want to be ruled by Yahweh. They wanted the security of a standing army. They wanted the security of chariots and horses, of battle tanks and aircraft carriers. They wanted security based on what they can see, rather than based on what God can provide. This is exactly us today. Insurance gives me security. Gives me peace of mind. I'm not against insurance. I'm just saying, sometimes it gives us more security than trusting in God. This is the same motivation of the prodigal son. They remember the prodigal son, Jesus thought. The prodigal son wanted this inheritance now. He didn't want to wait for his father to die first. He wanted to get his inheritance now. Why? Because he wanted to call the shots. He wanted to decide whether what kind of pleasure he will have. He wanted to decide on his food and his security and whatever that he wants. This is the repetition of the words or the phrase, melek asher bakar asher sha'al. King whom we have chosen, whom we have asked. Have you ever wondered why Jesus in Matthew 6.33 told us to seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? now what's followed after that is that this is in the context of worrying of worrying about food and clothing and shelter and yet jesus said seek ye first the kingdom of god and his righteousness why have you ever asked why the kingdom of god should take precedence or priority over the basic necessities of life what's interesting is that Jesus sees the issue of food clothing, and shelter as what the Gentiles seek after he's, He will say that at the end of the the passage. These are what the Gentiles seek after food, clothing, and shelter. What he's saying is that instead of accumulating wealth and securing their future, what Jesus says is that your priority is not about putting food on the table. your priority is not about making money to pay for your mortgage, what your priority is not about having clothes to wear. These are what the Gentiles seek. They seek after money, and in doing so, money has become their master. So if you read the book of Matthew 6, 7, and 8, there's a a context in that where money has become the master. What Jesus is saying is that our desire should be to serve the king. It should be to serve the interest on the kingdom. Why am I saying this? Because the whole context of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, begins with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The context is the kingdom of heaven. The announcement of Jesus about the kingdom of God is about the kingdom of God. The inscription on the cross about Jesus being king is about this context, the kingdom of God. See, we are in the kingdom of God. We belong to the kingdom of God. You see, the story didn't change. In the time of Samuel, in the time of Jesus, and still in the time today, the problem is that people keep forgetting our calling. People keep forgetting their calling, that their calling is directly tied to the kingdom of God. It's about serving the true king. But then you may say, Pastor, didn't the Bible say, Psalm 37, verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart? Uh Uh-huh. Right? Why should I desire to serve the King when I can delight myself in the Lord and He will give me what I want? Okay, hold on. Hang on a minute. Let me explain that to you. You see, the more you spend time with God... The more you find delight, the more you spend time with God, your delight changes, your desire changes, His desire become yours. So that at the end of the day, you will want what God wants. That's what it means to delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart because your desire now is correct. It's the will of God. That's the meaning of Psalm 37 verse 4. Because if not, we know what's inside our heart. Jeremiah 17, 17 verse 9. The heart is deceitful. It's desperately sick. All the heart wants is selfishness and wickedness. you don't believe me, try to read the first two chapters of the book of Romans. See, the more we know God, the more we understand His will and submit to Him. This is what prayer and fasting is all about. See, prayer and fasting, listen to me. Prayer and fasting is not the art of convincing God. No. Some people think that fasting is protesting God so that He will give what you want. That's not true. See, prayer and fasting is the art of aligning your desire to God's will. Jesus said, not my will but yours be done. That's what prayer and fasting is all about. Haven't you heard the scripture said, bad company corrupts good character? It is about who you spend your time with. It's guaranteed the more you spend time with God, And I don't mean reading the Scriptures, because reading the Scriptures does not lead to transformation. Reading the Scriptures lead to information. When I say spending more time with God, I'm talking about Mary spending her time at the feet of Jesus Christ, listening, hanging out with Jesus Christ, even though Martha, her sister, needs help in the kitchen. But she chooses to spend time with Jesus because she finds delight in Jesus Christ. See, discipleship is not about having more information. It is transformation. The point of transformation is not to know more information about Jesus. It is to become like Jesus more and more. See, Christians are not people who who have knowledge about Jesus Christ. Christians are those people who have become transformed because of Jesus Christ. Now Samuel begins with a harsh tone of indictment but the second part, he begins to encourage the people of Israel. Verse 14 he said, If you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. Now, there are very there are three important words in here but I will just focus on one. Fear the Lord, serve Him, obey. Fear, serve, obey. We already know what fear. We already know what obey. But what about serve? What does it mean to serve God? What does it mean for me to serve God? Now, it's used here six times in chapter 12. And it's always connected every time it's used, it's always connected with serve Yahweh, serve Baal. Baal is an idol, a foreign god. So what does it mean to serve God in the context of worship? The word, the Hebrew word for serve is abad. Abad is a form of our fundamental relationship to God as king. It shouldn't come a surprise to you that in the ancient world, idols, images, and shrines are literally served. So the word serve is literal. They give food, they offer food, clothing, and incense to idols and shrines and altars because they believe that idols need food, clothing, and candlelights and incense. Now, if you happen to visit a traditional Buddhist house, you'll find that somewhere in the house, there is an altar where food and incense is literally served. In Japan, they call it Komutsu, offering food for the dead. But whether it's Buddhist or Hindu or Voodoo, serve is taken literally. Now, here in South Florida, we have a cult here. It's called Santeria. Have you heard it? Santeria. Santeria is a combination of Animism and Catholicism, it started in the Caribbean, it was brought here, it's popular here. I was able to go to Little Havana in Miami to take photos on the streets, and I saw two shrines of Sentria. Now, if this is unfamiliar to you, if you happen to be walking in the park or a vacant lot, and you saw chicken parts or severed tongues of cows and pigs nailed to a tree, or a plastic bag full of blood, Those are the offerings for Senteria. They are meant to give spells and witchcraft, to give blessings and curses. Senteria. That's literally a abad, serving. Now, it's very interesting, how does this connect with God? Since God does not eat, God does not need any clothing, God does not need any incense, how can we serve Yahweh? How can we serve God? See, early on, Abel and Cain, or Hebel and Cain, would understand what it means to serve God. They understood that it's not about the food, the clothing, and the incense. It's not about the sacrifice. It goes deeper than that. Let me read to you Genesis chapter 4, verse 3 to 5. It says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. He gave an offering. It's very generic. An offering. And Hebel also brought the firstborn, the firstborn, of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Hebel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now we know back in chapter 3, when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, God cursed the ground. And yet this is the offering that Cain gave to God, fruit from the ground that God cursed. Does it tell you something? That he had no regard for what God wants. Secondly, he gave something that is in contrast with what Hebel gave. Hebel gave the firstborn of his flock. Cain gave an offering from the foot of the ground. It's not very special. Hebel gave the best. Cain did not give the best. But both speak of intention. See, here's what we can learn from this passage you don't get to choose what to offer God. Why? Because worship, to be acceptable, must be done in God's terms. This is a follow-up on Adam and Eve's rebellion. They wanted to live an independent life. They wanted to call the shots. That's why they wanted to eat the, the fruit of the tree. And it runs in the family. The rebellion runs in the family. Now, Cain... Approach God with His offering in His own terms, with His own choice, with His own standard. The Lord had no regard. Literally, He did not even look at the offering of Cain. But with the offering of Hebel, He had regard. He literally looked with favor. He was pleased with the offering of Hebel. You see, when you read the book of Leviticus, God will give a list of acceptable offerings to the Israelites, and one of those will be the firstborn from the flock what exactly Abel gave to God. See, Abel gave what God wants, not what he wants. He gave something that reflects his understanding of what pleases God, not what pleases Him. Therefore, serve or abad in the context of worship implies pleasing God. There's something that we do to please God. That's what servants do. That's what Israel did to Pharaoh. Served Pharaoh. They built the pyramids for free. In the, for the pleasure of Pharaoh. See, we are also called servants of God. But how do we serve God? Serving God means devoting one's life into pleasing God. If I do something that does not please God, then it's not acceptable to God. If my lip service is just lip service, then it's not acceptable to God. See, What we also do is devoting our life. What we also do, regardless of it's about God, is about devoting ourselves to God. Some people devote their lives on a cause, on a political cause, or for your loved ones, or for your profession. Or worse, the Bible said that you can also devote yourselves, your lives, to making money. That's why you can serve money. You can make God money mammon. So Samuel... Encourage the people by saying in verse 20, Do not be afraid, you have done evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. What this means is that there's a possibility of serving God half-heartedly. In fact, in the history of Israel, they have served Yahweh and Moloch, Yahweh and Baal, Yahweh and Ashtar half-heartedly. What it means is that we can also serve God half-heartedly. It is possible to serve God half-heartedly just as it is possible to profess Christianity half-heartedly. There are people who would say they're Christians, but they're only paying lip service. But you know what's amazing here in verse 22? The faithfulness of God. Look at verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. I was studying this this week, and I cannot wrap my head around it, because I cannot comprehend the whole idea of God will not forsake His people because of His great namesake. Even though their demand for a king was fundamentally wicked, God will not forsake His people. He will not abandon His people. He will not take back His promises to them. See, this is not how you and I operate. This is not how husbands and wives operate. Right? Husband and wives, am I still talking to you? You hurt me, I hurt you. That's how we operate. God doesn't operate that way. God doesn't do tit for tat. That's what we do. I do something, you do something for me. You do something for me, I return back the favor. Tit for tat. God doesn't do that. What he's saying is that even though you acted wickedly, God will not return that favor of wickedness. God doesn't do tit for tat why because god is great he will not stoop down for you to do a tit for tat because god is great he will remain faithful that's what samuel is saying here Now, verse 22 it says it has pleased the lord to make a people for himself think about that for a second what does it mean to say that it has pleased the lord therefore you see the whole context of this you have to include verse 19 so in verse 19 it says and all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants, the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. They knew that they had have done something wicked. So that means the full context of this is that even though they have done evil, even though they have failed, even though they have sinned, God will not forsake because it has pleased the Lord. Therefore, that is the full context. So you must be asking the same thing how does it relate to me now why has god brought me to this place to hear this specific message because it has pleased the lord why would god give me a chance to make it right with him because it has pleased the lord why would god still forgive me even though i make failures every day because it, because it has pleased the lord think about that brother or sister that you don't want to sit with in church because it has pleased the Lord. And even though if you think she doesn't deserve it, because it has pleased the Lord. Have you ever thought what God gets from rescuing us or what he gets from having to deal with us? What does God get from being patient with our constant failures? Samuel was clear, it has pleased the Lord. See, David will later on understand this. When he sinned, by committing murder and adultery, he was confounded by the prophet. And then he wrote Psalm 51, verse 15 to 17, he said, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I will give it. What he's saying is that I'm rich. I have all the flocks that I can give you. I can offer you what you want. But I know that you will not be delighted in my offering because the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. See, it's not the sacrifice and the food offerings and the blood sacrifices that pleases God. The things that we give are fundamentally meant nothing to God. They don't mean a thing. God doesn't need anything from us because the real sacrifice, the real sacrifice that pleases God is a humble heart, a heart of total obedience, a heart of total devotedness, a heart That is devoted to lakak, service. Devoted. See, David will eventually become king, but he will pay lip service. On one hand, he will offer sacrifices. On the other hand, he will commit murder and adultery. And he would understand that God is not impressed, God is not pleased by that kind of life. What does that have to do with Jesus? If you skip the history of the kings, beginning from Samuel all the way to Malachi, and open the Gospels in the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you will find that Jesus would go to the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist. He was not there to repent because the baptism of John the Baptist was about repentance, but he was not there to repent. He was there to rehearse his mission. And what is his mission? See, baptism is about dying and rising three years later he will do that he was rehearsing by baptism he was trying to show his father that he will obey obey God in what he wanted you see this is this is crucial because the moment he came out of the water a voice from heaven said this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased Now, who's talking Joseph is not the one talking. Joseph faded in the story after they came from Egypt. Who's talking? Whose voice is it? It's the voice of the Heavenly Father. This is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. He was so pleased that he mentioned it twice. One in baptism, second in transfiguration. He was so pleased. Why is God the Father pleased with Jesus Christ, His beloved son? Because Jesus is willing to demonstrate what obedience looks like full obedience. See, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was there, he was praying so intently. His wet became drops of blood. He was praying so passionately. He was saying, Lord, may this cup pass from me. I don't want this. But at the end of the prayer, he said, not my will, but yours be done. See, this kind of devotion from God. He demonstrated what serving God really means. And this whole idea is about Pleasing God. You serve because you pleased God. He's doing it willingly. See, what motivated him was the sheer resolve to please the Father even when it hurts. How's your service? See, the concept of serve is embedded deep in our consciousness, it's built from the moment we were born. Think about this. The greatest pleasure of our kids is not from the things we buy for them. No, 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 no. The greatest pleasure of our kids is knowing that we are looking at them and that we are pleased with what they're doing. I have a four-year-old, and she would always say, Daddy, look at me, look at me. I'm working. I'm working. I cannot. Daddy, look at me, look at me. And she would do this in my face. She finds pleasure in doing, repeating things when I know that I am pleased with her. This is the same thing what we do. Even though we're all separated from our parents, we still find pleasure in pleasing our parents. That's why we take care of them. We surprise them on their birthdays. We want to please them because embedded in us, when we were made in God's image, we were made to please God. The reason why we can call God our Father was because Jesus did the unthinkable He endured the agony of abandonment. See, in the prayer of Jesus, He taught us to address God as our Father. Now, we understand that God the Father is His Father exclusively. We cannot be brothers to Jesus Christ. But then He taught us to address God as our Father. See, again, back in the Garden of Eden, Our forefathers, the first father and mother, Adam and Eve, were kicked out of the garden. Their relationship with God was cut off. What Jesus is saying is that we're restoring back that relationship. Through me, you can call God again, our Father. See, in the Old Testament, our Father is always in the context of Creator. So we're not just simply creators of God. There's something in us that's directly connected to God. We are made in God's image. Remember the times when your friend comes along or someone says that your daughter or your son is like a splitting image of you? Your image, that's what it means to be made in the image of God. You know why God is running after you? Because you look like Him. You're made in God's image. The reason why Jesus said, call God our Father is because... We can be restored to this kind of relationship. We're not just creation of God, we are made in that image. The reason why we can call God our Father was because Jesus did the unthinkable. And what's that? He endured the agony of abandonment on the cross while he was hanging there. He said, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me or forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? See, in the baptism, he's my beloved son. I'm well pleased. And yet, in the cross, there was no voice from heaven that said, This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. Instead, there was silence and darkness. See, the sound of abandonment is silence and darkness. Imagine both every time we decide to prioritize my kingdom instead of God's kingdom. Imagine silence and darkness every time we fail to serve, to please, to trust in God. Now, I don't know if this is you today, but maybe you're saying, Pastor, God has been silent every time I'm trying to reach out to Him. And if you feel this sense of abandonment, if you feel that God maybe is not reaching out to you because of whatever that's happening through your circumstances, listen to Apostle Paul you with these words. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. He said, But we have treasures in jars of clay, Jars of clay is their bodies and their circumstances. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken, betrayed, abandoned, forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus Christ so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to the death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also be manifested in our mortal flesh. Watch this last word. He said, So death is at work in me, but life in you. See that? See, even though We are struggling in this life. It doesn't define who you are. It doesn't define your circumstance. It doesn't define your relationship with God. God has proven that love when He died on the cross. He was abandoned so that you can come to God and call God our Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for today. We praise you for Jesus Christ, who has restored that relationship so that we can call you our Father. It's not just that because you created us, but because we have this relationship, special relationship with you that no one has. I cannot call my neighbor Father because I'm not related to him. I cannot call the taxi driver my, my father because I'm not related to him, but I can call you. Because you're my Father through Jesus Christ. Father, speak to us. Speak to every one of us. And show us your mercy and your grace. In Christ's name.